We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, we are very excited to welcome a very special guest to The Scoop, Robert Greifeld. In the high-frequency trading and exchange world, Bob really needs no introduction. He led NASDAQ as its CEO from 2003 to 2016, driving its evolution as a fledgling listing venue for many tiny tech companies, right? A few big ones, but very tiny at the time. Into a diversified global financial technology company, He now sits on the board of Virtu Financial, a high-frequency trading firm, as its chairman. We're very excited to have you on, Bob, to chat about your new book, Market Movers, and dig into your storied career and examine some of the market structure debates shaping today's capital markets. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It is absolutely my pleasure to be here today. I think uh, the best place to start is that first day. Uh, You almost were late, right? Or you almost think, didn't think you were going to make it because you had a marathon the day before. You got there on time. You wake up in the morning. Your wife calls you, says, honey, there's a black limousine sitting outside our house. And there you were, starting your new journey as the first day of the CEO of NASDAQ. What was it like um, to take on such a giant position, one that you didn't really think you wanted, at least for some time? And then, so, and then execute that that vision that you had. So I, I would say this: when I got hired, I had a very clear concept of what had to be done with respect to the what would be known as the classical exchange transaction business. I had a clear concept of how Nasdaq operated because I had been a software entrepreneur, I had interfaced my systems, their systems, so I knew the bureaucracy that existed in the firm. So, you know, the first day, as I you know, talked about in the book, where I you know, fired a number of people before 8 o'clock, I had a clear mission that was uh, they had to know that there was going to be new culture in this organization. I knew there was not enough time for us to wait to have communal discussions about what we should be when we grow up. I had to impose a certain way of doing things instantaneously, and even with that, as I referenced in the book, for the first 
number of months, I just thought I was six months too late because as much as you want to do the right things, you know you don't have a, uh, a magic wand. It was later in my tenure, after the first couple months, I realized how woefully inadequate I was for different parts of the job that I didn't know existed at the time. So before the first day, I was full of confidence because I knew exactly what I had to do. That was a, I was focused on probably two, three, four months in, I recognized that the Washington relations part of the NASDAQ job was larger than I had anticipated and something I didn't have very much experience at. I recognized that the listings business, uh, where I came to know that Dick Grosso from the New York Stock Exchange was involved with a lot of our accounts was relatively new for me and was certainly going to take a, a significant amount of time to deal with that. So first days actually were full of confidence. Later days, I said, boy, I really have to expand my skill set. And part of that expansion of skill set beyond government relations and the listings business was also, uh, you know, the publicity aspect of running NASDAQ. You know, to be on the cover of Business Week two months into your tenure, you knew that there was a, uh, a different deal. It's interesting. I mean, over the course of your tenure, um, when you think about the exchange landscape, you mentioned Washington. There were so many rule changes that happened. If you think about things like Reg NMS in 2015 or 2005, that was a big one. Um, even today, right, NASDAQ NYSE are suing the SEC over uh, that trading fee pilot plan. What were some of the most frustrating moments from a regulatory perspective you can recall uh, during your time at NASDAQ? You, you sort of alluded to it being a a learning experience for you, but what were some specific uh, hardships or difficulties that you faced? Well, I, I would say this, uh, you know, not having dealt directly with the regulator and coming from a technology background, uh, the first thing that is truly overwhelming is to realize the pace at which the regulator will operate. And some of that is structural with the fact that you have five commissioners and because of sunshine laws, they're not really able to get together between meetings. So you have a certain very, very slow pace. And at one point I had a line that I said we could call the SEC uh, operating at the speed of erosion, but that would be an insult to erosion. <laughs> so you just had to deal with a whole different pace and, you know, if you weren't at the top of the list and you didn't have congressional pressure on the regulator, then it was hard to get anything done. So I had to, I'll call it mature into uh, those kind of relationships. And that was you know, basically frustrating. Well, it's interesting covering the cryptocurrency market. A lot of the ex exchanges and CEOs that I cover and speak to um, harp about the same issue, right? The, the lack of speed on the part of the regulator. Um when you when you hearken back, was there anything in particular that uh, Nasdaq or your counterparties viewed as being something that needed to get done quickly that they were slow to? And how did you resolve that that lack of urgency? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, and what's interesting, the period of time I was Nasdaq, you know, I started when the floor trading still reigned supreme. So uh, we had stats that if you sent an order down to the floor, the average time to get an execution back was 30 seconds. And NASDAQ was obviously sub-second, and 
we were probably 20 or 30 milliseconds at that time. And the world just wanted to go faster and electronically. And it was, to me, self-evident and anybody who saw markets around the world saw which way it was going. But we had a chairman of the SEC, Bill Donaldson, who had been chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and, you know, our very first meeting with him, he speaks about, you know, the grandeur of the exchange and the tradition and, uh, you know, how you want to change that. I'm saying, okay, here's a guy who's really wants to live in the past. So that, that, that was frustrating. So the world, you know, by 03, 04, 05, you know, the internet was here, it was coming and things were moving. And then, you know, to try to get in execution in under a minute from the leading exchange on the planet platform seemed, you know, farcical really to me that we had to live with this. When just rewinding the clock back a bit to those first few years um, during your time as CEO, we think about how, how much the firm was really reeling following the bust of the tech IPO um, bubble uh, and, and that was a huge source of revenue for the firm, listing hundreds of, of tech companies at the time. You noted that there was bureaucracy was rife, the culture was broken, um, and it was really um, kind of focused a little too much on the listings business. It's now incredibly diversified listing, indexing technology, um, outsourcing your own technology or the firm's own technology, what was that turnaround story like um, over those those several years, uh, and and what was the guiding vision? So, uh, to when we looked at uh, our core business, I, I said one in '03 there were zero uh, IPOs, so it's hard to fathom. And when I hear the publicity about the IPO market in 2019 and people being concerned about it, and We've raised $50 billion. I said, well, you know, we're kind of in a, you know, a, a different situation. So we knew, though, that the IPO market would come back, but it was never going to be a growth engine. And what happens is the number of listed companies, you know, you would have IPOs come in, but then you'd have, obviously, bankruptcies in the listed, listed companies. But more important, you'd have M&A activity. Uh, and the larger tech companies, you know, certainly uh, by 2000 five, six, seven were developing plans to basically swallow up the small guys. So the number of public companies was not going to grow. So we knew that. We also knew on the transaction side uh, that uh, had somewhat a race to zero with respect to what people are going to be willing to pay for a transaction side. Obviously, we've seen that on the retail side. So we said, okay, what are we going to do, right? Let's not fight these two uh, a fundamental facts of our life. You know, typically, you want to go into denial for a period of time, but let's embrace that and say, how do we reinvent ourselves when that's going to be our uh, reality? So that was not instantaneously available, but I knew that our technology, because right, we had survived the exchange wars in the U.S., and that was really uh, at the tip of a sphere. And so we were tip of the sphere with respect to the application functionality, the robustness of the infrastructure, I knew the rest of the world was a decade behind, uh, literally a decade behind, and we'd have a great opportunity to go out and move that technology across the planet. And what felt very good about it is if we provided our technology 
to, say, Nigeria or to Dubai, we have the ability to fast forward their capital market because embedded in the technology was the learnings of the market and how to put the market together and how to run it efficiently. Was but, there, you know, so go ahead. No, I was going to, I was going to say, was there any, um, internal, um, debate over whether that would be an effective strategy, essentially white labeling your own technology out to, in, in many cases, not necessarily rival exchange groups, but just different firms. In, yeah, in so I would say that so the debate we had to live with for a while, and we had to explain to our investors, was the following, right? So the transaction business and the traditional market data business that we exchange is a very, very high margin, right? Uh, so if you know you you get a six percent margin business, that's quite exciting, and you like to stay in six percent margin businesses. But the technology business we were getting into properly run was about a 30% uh, margin business. So we certainly debated that and how would that impact our multiple. But at the end of the day, you know, my, my thought, and it was helpful to be the CEO, was if it's a good business opportunity, we bring unique skill sets to it. And as a large market for it, then we should do it. And then we'll take our time explaining to investors that, yes, the corporate margin is down, but you've got to look at these things, you know, in a more granular fashion. So the debate was centered more around that than anything else. Another business that grew over the past, you know, 10 years is the data business and exchanges leveraging the transaction data that they have to uh, basically sell that back to the street. Uh, Yes. Hello. Yeah. I lost you there for a second. Now you're back. Oh, Oh, no worries. I was just saying another business that grew, not just for NASDAQ, but for several exchanges, is the, is the data business, right? And figuring out ways to package data uh, in a way that can increase um, margins and revenues. And we're talking very, very massive margins. Um, almost, you know, almost to the point of, and we've seen this over the past few years, sparking so much debate between exchanges and the brokers over whether or not those fees are fair, you sit in a really interesting seat now as the chairman of Virtu uh, there with Doug Sifu and, and can kind of see the other side. Um, looking at that debate play out from different sides of the street, what is your view on, on, on the mounting costs or what some might view as the mounting costs of market data? Yeah, so I, I, I certainly have unique vantage points because, uh, you know, our management team in virtue would always like to pay less for data and the exchanges always like to charge more. And this is not a new issue. I, I think it's, you know, more uh, front and center today, but it's existed for, you know, for decades here. So, and then you get into somewhat the philosophical question of who should own the data, which I know some of the retail brokers uh, question there. So I, I would say this, that, you know, you have, with respect to the data, you have to understand that the SEC requires, right, when you're about to place an order for a share, that you have visible to you uh, the best bid and offer in, in the land. And that then becomes a regulatory required function, kind of not subject to market forces. One of the things we did at NASDAQ, which reduced 
the data course by two thirds and said, okay, when you're just looking at data, just take our data feed. It's 94% correlated with the inside market. And the SEC doesn't require you to have the consolidated feed just for browsing. And that was a product called NASDAQ basic, which I think has done uh, very well within the, uh, the, the retail space. So there are ways to innovate around making the dating course lower, but it's also a function of regulatory fiat where, you know, to protect investors, they want a consolidated tape of all the trading activity. And obviously as there become more exchanges trading uh, individual stocks, that consolidation activity, you know, is, is more intensive. When you look at the landscape today, do you think where market data is being priced is is it at a fair level? Is it at what level? Do you think it's being priced fairly? Yeah, I, I would say, uh, and I don't want to get into details too much with this, but I, I would say that when you look at market data, uh, the retail firms are paying more of a load than other firms. So then you can make your value judgments there with respect to the allocation of, of that. But I, I think this will be an issue that you know doesn't doesn't go away. Will always be there. It was an issue I think that was really brought to the forefront with the um, with with IEX coming online and coming to the market and taking on Wall Street, so to speak. And I think today it can be debated the impact that they've had on, on market structure and um, their market share is not not all that great, even several years after the fact. Walk me through being CEO at the time of Michael Lewis's book coming out. Uh, Michael Lewis and Brad Katsuyama basically saying that the markets are rigged to a certain extent and firms like NASDAQ and NYSE are the riggers. I think at one point you described IEX as doing a drive-by on the exchange business to Fortune. Um, was there any level of, of frustration about some of the accusations they were making and the business model that they were presenting? Yeah, I mean, there was a tremendous level of uh, uh, frustration with the Michael Lewis book. One is that he, you know, he basically wrote a story told by one person, right? So it was not attempting to do any uh, research on how the markets work. And you had one person with a one-sided story. And one of the things I said at the time was that the industry has a large number of academics that follow, uh, you know, what happens in the market. And uh, NASDAQ and other exchanges makes the entire data available to academics to do their testing on it. Uh, so you had, I think at the time of the Michael Lewis book, I, I forget, but you know, called 10, 10 books written by academics on how the markets function. And these were thoroughly research books based upon data. And I think the top one on the Amazon list was like number 10,000. So I said, here's your serious works of scholarship in terms of how the markets work, but yet because a guy told the story with zero research, you know, it's getting, you know, the sales and, uh, uh, and the publicity there. So that, that, that was frustrating. And I found it remarkable. He never talked to anybody, right? So he wasn't trying to, uh, tell a fair story. And 
independent of the exchanges role in it, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, it was as if the SEC didn't exist, right? The SEC is the cop on the beat. So you can argue how good or bad or ineffective or maleffective they are, but they're there and they're present. And any rule filing an exchange makes has to be approved by the commission. When I talk about what I had to learn um, from a regulatory point of view is, uh, and it was shocking to me as a technologist, I said, if I want to put a new piece of code in that does a new thing, I can't just do it. I have to be approved by the commission. And to the extent that it's beyond what the staff thinks is in the ordinary course, then it has to go out for comment and review. And the comment review is the community, Mm -hmm. you know, participating in this, uh, Kind of thing. So none of that was uh, talked about. So that was that. And then, uh, you know, when you think about access to markets and, you know, it was covered, you know, the trading floor by definition was the high speed trading of the day. You wanted it had to be physically there because you didn't have any technology and then you had to carry a pigeon. So there's nothing new about that. But on a relative basis, the markets, have more democratized access than they ever had in their recorded history. So that was kind of, you know, not, not mentioned at all. It's funny. I remember, I remember the day that the SEC gave uh, IEX their approval to run as an exchange um, back in 2016. And the arguments that you and, and Izzy were making, um, against that that ruling was that you can't deliberately you can't slow down the markets deliberately and and here we are today it's 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 funny or ironic maybe tons of um or not tons but several exchanges chicago uh nazi america have implemented their own version of of a speed bump um what's your thinking as you look back on 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 that approval process is there a degree of um, hypocrisy there? Well, one I was say with respect to the speed bump, and I remember saying this, uh, if you remember back in the dot-com days, uh, Larry Ellison had, a, uh, to me, a very famous line. He said, that's not a, a company, that's a feature, right? So I always thought the speed bump, right, wrong, or indifferent, was a feature. It, it, it wasn't a company, right? There was so much more complexity in so many other applications there. So, uh, you know, with respect to the speed bump, once the SEC says this is the way it is, uh, and it's not just with speed bump, but a number of things that you might not philosophically agree with, uh, one of the things I've always said to my people is you've got to deal with the reality uh, as it is and not what you'd like it to be, right? So once the SEC establishes this is the reality, then it's your job to operate within the framework of that reality. You, you fight it until that point, but after that, you know, you, you, you're, you're there to, uh, you know, to deal with it. It's, it's interesting. Um, you, you being at Virtu now, uh, and they're pushing for members exchange to get their own license operate as an exchange venue, kind of, taking on the same fight as IEX as they did um, 2014, 2015, and then in 2016. What can Members Exchange do uh, that IEX in in becoming a a successful liquid marketplace that 
um, IEX couldn't do and, and maybe solve problems that NASDAQ or NYSE Yeah, so solve. you're breaking up a little bit, but is your question, what can IEX do that NASDAQ can't do? No, so I'll, I'll ask the question again. Um, with Members Exchange coming online now, being backed by the likes of Virtu and Citadel, what can they achieve in serving the market that IEX seems to have been able to, and what can they do that NASDAQ and NYSE couldn't do or can't do? Yeah, so yeah, I, I think I'm getting the question. So one, that, you know, with respect to uh, new off-stars, right? So now uh, when you look at the history of the industry, you know, you have – a long-term history, and I was part of it back in the brute days, where uh, members, brokers get together, form a competing venue. Uh, the venue gets to be successful. They monetize that venue, and they've done that obviously quite well with bats and brutes and brute and others. And then they pick their head up a year or two later and say, "Well, why don't we just rinse and repeat with that?" So you're getting that cycle happening here. Uh, and, you know, I think what you find is IEX was a outlier and really wasn't from a technology or, uh, from a price point of view, particularly competitive, uh, there, but you've got the member exchange, you know, trying to come at it with, you know, state of our technology with the broad backing of the industry. And as I said, it's been done before they're going to do it again. So, uh, you know, that will be very interesting. Uh, now, it's not 1999 where the exchanges have you know big profit margins on intraday trading, so that's a higher barrier for members exchange to get to. But you know they're, they're definitely going to try. Let's shift gears a little bit and and think about the Facebook IPO, right? Uh, you had can, you attributed arrogance as contributing to the Facebook IPO debacle. You described it as a as being as the firm being humbly embarrassed at the time, pretty bold things for a CEO to admit and say. Walk us through exactly what went wrong, and I'm sure you've talked about what went wrong plenty of over several occasions. Um, more interestingly, how do you, as a CEO, how do you work to rebuild that trust? I think that's something that any person I, can learn from. Um, from my see, uh, how do you rebuild trust? How do I what? Like that? Rebuild trust with the customers. Well, yeah, with, with the customers, so, with the market. Uh, so, the one, everybody. you know, when Facebook happens, you know, in the standard CEO toolbook is that uh, you fire people who are directly or sometimes indirectly responsible for that. And I certainly had my moments where I thought that would be the easy answer uh, and one I'd like to pursue. But what I had to do is be more thoughtful and understand what was the root cause of the issue. And what became apparent is typically when there's failure is some lack of confidence in the organization. So here, uh, you know, we had the best technology people on the planet and there was no lack of confidence from their, what, uh, from their level. But what I learned, and it was a hard thing for me to learn because he pointed back to me, is the culture was wrong, right? And the culture was too uh, uh, too much tilted towards the technology people who got to basically uh, decide what, when, and where we did, 
and the muscle in the business unit to specify what they needed uh, and time frame they needed was underdeveloped. And I recognize that that is what I had established. And I've done that really back in 2003 when I came in and said, we have to get to a rapid deployment environment. We have to get this technology out the door quicker. Technologists have to be empowered. So in 03, when I came to NASDAQ, we had a release schedule of once a year with a mainframe-based system. It was entirely reliable. The customer was deserting us in those upside ETNs where they would break all the time, but they would have new releases all the time. And obviously the customer valued that more than our uh, stability. So we had to look you know, more like our competitors and more like what the customers wanted. Uh, but time had marched on and I, so I, I built the culture to respond to the customers, uh, respond in a rapid deployment uh, fashion and not to go through the yearly cycle of engineering. Now, time had moved on and we'd gone too far. So after Facebook, I said, okay, we're kind of going back uh, somewhat, but not all the way to where we were. And I'm sure there's some NASDAQ people that I fired in 03 that said, Bob, I knew this would happen to you sooner or later. But we went to a more methodical approach where the business unit had to specify, had to build up their technical capability, what they wanted, right? And the technology people could not over-engineer it. I called it just entertaining each other, which is what we did with the IPO logic with Facebook. So what's interesting, I didn't fire the tech people, but they all self-selected within a year to leave because they, you know, be great companies to do a startup business with. And that's where they went, but didn't want to get into, you know, some of the bureaucracy of what NASDAQ had to implement there. So, you know, we had to then become more process driven, more bureaucratic, but not to the point that we lost our ability to invent the iPad. So it was a, a so you bait, yeah. obviously it was a great management challenge. It was a difficult time, uh, you know, personally and professionally, but yeah, we definitely came out of it a better company. Sure. Sure. You, you essentially gave too much power to the tech, to the, to the tech geeks in the back. And then, you know, Facebook happened. Folks volunteered, volunteered to leave at that point. They basically did it all on their own. There wasn't a second wave of firing. Yeah. So at that point, it sounds like you gave too much power to the technologists. And then there was a voluntary cleaning of the house. And how did you move forward? Like, how did the team press forward with deals against New York Stock Exchange with Facebook? Always kind of back of mind, right? If you, if you have your listings team sitting in the, ro- sitting in the room with a big tech company, uh, that tech uh, chief uh, financial officer needs to know or needs to have the ability to go to their CEO and say, this isn't going to happen. What happened with Facebook isn't going to happen when, when we go public. And I think that's a hard sentiment to crack. Right. Yeah. And, and so I'm interested to know and yeah, know so how you really, do it. Uh, was not, not an issue except for very large IPOs. So I think the year after Facebook, we had our highest win rate of IPOs and, of the last uh, five years, and that win rate continued to go higher. So the new IPOs coming to market did not reference Facebook, right? The scale was 
a hundred times bigger than they were. They didn't expect retail investors across the country to be investing in them. So that, you know, so that, that was a, a, a blessing for us. So we did incredibly well in the IPO market. But where it did affect us is with Alibaba, right? So that was a big issue with mm-hmm. uh, Alibaba. And so, you know, we had to, you know, pay. We're in the penalty box there. We also learned that there are things we had to do in our IPO process, nothing to do with the Facebook issues. So uh, with Alibaba, I felt with Joe Sai and team, we had overcome what had surfaced in Facebook. And we had simplified our code so much. And they had their tech people look at it. There was like 130 lines of code we were running on the, uh, the, the laptop. So that was pretty but what we didn't have is some of the capabilities that the specialists had in terms of providing information. So Adina was uh, headed up that project to basically improve our IPO process. We now have an IPO auctioneer. So you know we were definitely in the penalty box for you know one, two, three, four of the large IPOs, but you know 98% of them we you know we just did better than we ever had. But the, that that didn't really have that much to do with Facebook. More so to do with others, uh, was, those ancillary yeah, it was capabilities. So big that your average IPO just didn't, you know, it didn't come up. It didn't reference that. You know, they, they didn't self-reference to them. Uh, obviously, a a big part of your tenure included a number of acquisitions. OMX was probably the most notable. But I'm more interested in in knowing what was the acquisition that maybe got away. It was reported in 2011 that NASDAQ considered the bid for Nisey Uranex. Do you think it was a loss not being able to clinch the big board? And what were what was the thinking at the board level at the time about that possible acquisition? So I, I would say this. So, you know, the 47 acquisitions we did, there was only one that was mandatory. Uh, the, all the others were completely optional. And obviously the ones we didn't do were completely optional. So we had to acquire uh, the INET technology and the instrument market share. So I came to NASDAQ, as we said, we had a mainframe system. We're losing market share every, every day. Uh, we had one piece of technology in-house. It was in Europe uh, for NASDAQ Europe. It was running on Microsoft. It had never been really tested. It didn't have the functionality, but we had, you know, a team of people working on that as our successor platform. And it, you know, scared the hell out of me because I'd be betting the farm on something unproven and doing 10 trades in Europe is nothing like doing, you know, 100,000 trades in a second in the States. So Instanet, INET was by far the best technology on the street. I had been aware of it. We talked about it in the book. It's kind of a fascinating story back from my entrepreneurial days when it was being formed out in Staten Island. So I knew it for a long period of time. So that deal I had to do, we levered up almost 10 times when we did that deal, and that was just existential risk. So whether it was the London Stock Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, all things I wanted to do, you know, I didn't have to do it, and there was a certain price associated with it. Now, New York was more frustrating than London because in London, we... Uh, we chose not to bid higher. And I had Sam Hammond and John Paulson mm-hmm. in the States ready to sell me their shares at a price which would have got me over 51%. So it's always easier when you are saying no. So with LSU, we said no. 
Now, with the New York Stock Exchange, the Department of Justice said no to us. So that was, you know, more frustrating outcome because we wanted to get to the yes, but, you know, we really, really didn't have a path there. Another example maybe of the regulators causing a degree of frustration in, in you trying to execute on, on your vision. Um, when you look at today, right, it's it's an interesting IPO landscape. Uh Companies are opting to wait longer to go public, and this isn't necessarily a new trend, but with ample amounts of venture capital money flowing around VC and uh, VC land and the like, uh, they they have that option now. Um, but that option leads to, and I think you'll agree with this, a lack of discipline with many companies. And you see firms with, uh, as you described on CNBC recently, uh, without a path to profitability. Um, and I think WeWork provides that crown jewel example of a firm that is kind of in the limbo land of, of figuring out what their long-term plan is and, and definitely lacking that discipline. And we've seen in the valuation, and as that valuation has continued to come down, what, Bob, what, what, how do we solve this problem? How do the capital markets uh, shape up in a way where companies go to the market, in a reasonable amount of time, and they come to market with a plan for profitability. And do the exchanges play a role in that? Who who, who does this fall? So I, I would say this: it's a lot of topics we can cover here. So one, uh, you've got private market valuations like the forty-seven billion dollars of WeWork had versus public. The first thing I would say is private market valuations are primarily bilateral, and one person in a two-person deal can make a mistake and have a wrong sense of value. Public markets are less likely uh, to have the wrong number. Certainly public markets get it wrong more than they want to, but compared to private markets, you can have a real, real sense of, of value there. So uh, I think when you what you're talking about is really the psychology of investors. And I, I say anytime investors get away from some degree of fundamental analysis, they're definitely going into a, a danger zone. And I, I think with the issues with WeWork, we're seeing uh, that, one, the public markets exerted discipline. And I think, uh, as you mentioned, it's going to be very hard for companies that don't have a clear and discernible path to profitability to come public in the medium and near term, you know, hard stop. Now, if you're a company that's growing 20% a year, you have EBITDA, the public markets will take you really at any time. The window's open, and they're probably willing to pay you know, a rich valuation for that with the amount of capital in the marketplace uh, today. But at the end of the day, I believe in the market seeking the proper valuation, there will be dislocation, but you do get to the right answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what role does the exchange have in, yeah, in that's that process? Fundamental. In- Maybe making it's, the capital markets more it's pal- fundamental. Pal- you know, the exchange is the venue, right? So the exchange has what's known as fair access standards. So that's akin to open access, but you have to fit within the four walls of the regulation. So the exchanges will take short sellers, long sellers. You know, uh, they'll take mutual funds, they'll take hedge funds, they'll take high frequency traders, they'll take people trying to lay off their options. Positions, trying to people take, trying to lay off commodities. So 
they bring everything together and into this Gordon view of the various players, right? That's where the magic of price discovery happens. The exchanges have to have proper rules, the proper technology, where all people, short, long term, I say, can come together, you know, have dislocations, have disagreements on price, but again, have the wisdom of crowds come to uh, what will be the right price. It's the best way we have of doing it. It's not perfect, but it is a great way of getting to fair value of assets. The troubles plaguing the IPO market have definitely been in the headlines. Another thing that's been in the headlines, obviously, it's something that we write about a lot, obviously, covering the cryptocurrency landscape is, is Bitcoin, right? And a lot of your previous rivals, including you know, CME has its options or set to have its options. It has its futures. Intercontinental Exchange has backed. NASDAQ appears to be the lone wolf, so to speak, without having any specific products out there, um, except for some that trade in the Nordics. Do you think as an exchange venue, these types of these newfangled products tied to the crypto market, is it a distraction, Bob? Is it is it the future? Where do you where do you so do one is you, you know we, we spent a lot of time thinking about this many years ago and certainly uh, it didn't take us that long to focus on the blockchain and the power of the blockchain for uh, the industry and one of the things I was proud of is you know we launched Nasdaq private market to allow you know because we knew private markets were certainly here to stay companies are staying private longer and many of them should. But that didn't preclude the need for early investors, employees to have some liquidity. Uh, so that's where we started private markets. And then we put the private market up on the blockchain. And it was a proud day when we had a private market transaction occur on uh, you know, NPM and then settle and clear on the blockchain and move the money within 10 minutes. And that same day, if you wanted to trade Apple, it would have taken two days to sell and clear. So clearly, NASDAQ was an innovative use in a practical way of blockchain technology. And what was you know, great about that is since we were inventing NASDAQ private markets, it was beginning of time, and it didn't require a billings. We could, you know, we controlled the whole vertical stack. We could decide to do it today. So I think you'll see as you try to have blockchain replace other conventions in the industry, it takes the village and it takes longer, but that will be quite successful there. You know, with, with respect to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, the speculation associated with uh, Bitcoin and others, you know, I have personally, I'm talking to Bob here, I've limited interest in that, but I certainly see the value of having a digital currency uh, that is, tied to sovereign wealth so you take the betting element out of it and can use it you know, to actually transact business. And when I talk to people here in the state, a, you know, a lot of people don't get how important that can and should be because we live in a you know, one-currency environment. But for a lot of the world, they have to deal across multiple currencies and there's friction associated with that. And to the extent you have a digital currency that was more more global, then I certainly think you can take a bit of friction out of the system, and that would be a great thing. 
So you don't own any Bitcoin? No, no, I, I, I don't believe in Bitcoin or disbelieve in Bitcoin as a speculative investment. And it just doesn't interest me. You know, there's, if I wanted to bet, I could, you know, you know, there's many ways to bet. But I believe in uh, digital currencies actually providing value to society, right? So when you look at the friction cost of cross-border transactions today, we need something like Bitcoin to be used, right? So if I could, you know, buy and sell in Bitcoin, but not have to worry about whether Bitcoin's $9,000 today or $6,000 today, then that would be a great thing. So, you know, when I think about digital currencies, I like, you know, a stable coin uh, kind, of, kind of concept. Mm -hmm. Something, something that like, you know, Facebook is working on with Libra, JP Morgan has its JP Morgan coin. There's a definitely, profusion of these, these different stable coins. I want to take the betting element out of it, the, the gambling element out of the digital currency, hard, hard stop. Have you ever heard of MakerDAO? Maker, it's another no. stable coin uh, project. No. But the, the, these, will, um, these will do well. I'm not here to predict the winner, but it has to do well. But the other thing you realize is you know, most people can go digital without having to use a digital currency, right? So you know, as you know, we owned all the Nordic exchanges. And when you go to the Nordics, there is, you know, I, you can't find paper money. But it just doesn't exist uh, there. So there, you know, 90-something percent of the transactions are all digital today. They don't have a coin to do it, but they have a digital infrastructure, and things just happen that way. So, you know, there's many ways to get to that answer. The Nordics, you know, have to be, you know, 10 years ahead of where we are. Tell me a little bit about, um, and you mentioned in the book, I feel like family is just at the core of your life, a Long Island guy. You, you mentioned not coming from all that much, working your way up, and almost a sense of imposter syndrome sometimes, at least at the, at the onset of your time at NASDAQ. Um, how do you grapple How do with I that? what? Uh, just how, how do you grapple with, with, with that? Um, you know, looking back and coming so far from not that much, and what's your advice for folks who are looking to make a similar yeah, climb. So, uh, one is, uh, I, I, I would say this, this, uh, when you look at your, your life in some degree of retrospect, uh, you know, certain things reveal itself to you. So one is, uh, you know, uh, without my entrepreneurial side turn, right. I, I was going to be limited in my career. So the ability to go out and invent yourself, the startup company and to be successful, uh, it's a great American value that we can do that and it puts you on a different path in life. And that, that was a key part of what I did and certainly a key part of why I was hired by uh, NASDAQ. But, you know, I talk to a lot of young people and they always want to see if I get magic words for them. And, you know, of course I don't, but I, I do say, and I say it with some degree of emotion, is that I never had a career plan, but I did always want to do something I really had passion to, to doing. And I think to the extent you find something you have passion with, you will do it well and other opportunities present themselves to you. And as I had worked in some large companies, the concepts of people trying to climb a career ladder and taking a job to get to another job always seemed anathema to me. I, I don't want to waste 
a day, a week, a month, a year of my life doing something I really don't want to do. Now, then I have to say, understand that when I say you have passion for the job, that doesn't mean you wake up on Monday morning skipping out of bed saying, oh, God, thank God the weekend's over. Now I can get to work. But because, uh, you know, we all have the grind that we have to live through. But it still is a level of passion and engagement that really, one, makes you successful through your employer and then successful in your life. So you got to find what you want you know, to do, what you can bring passion to, and then you know, the rest will happen. Yeah, and just like there was no magic wand to fixing the problems that plagued NASDAQ at the at the start of your tenure there, there's similarly no magic wand for life, but there are guiding principles, guiding ways to act. Uh, and I think that in the book, you, you sort of highlight some of those. What, what were some of the mistakes you think, um, the biggest mistakes maybe you made as CEO that have informed or that then informed uh, your career and your life? Okay. So one is I, I actually, uh, and don't think I'm, weird here but i i always took great pleasure in no i, I won't think you're I weird i always do and i still do take Go great ahead. pleasure <laughs> in thinking about things i could have done and what kind of outcome they they could have had as a result of it and obviously i do that because i think you learn from it and while you never face the exact same situation again you'll have echoes of it as you move forward in life so i you know i think about the different deals i could have done and I chose not to do LSC and NYSE are not, you know, two of those. Uh, but you know, there are many others that you say, okay, why, why didn't I, I, I do that? Right. And that could have been quite powerful for us in the fullness of time. There's always many paths to come. And, you know, wait, was that? there a business? Was there a specific business maybe that NASDAQ could have gone into well, that? Yeah. You well, thought there, about and then ended up not there, doing. There are certainly deals that we could have done. CBO, CBOE comes to mind. You know, Russell Investments come to mind. A whole slew of them that, that we we could have done, but you know, it worked out fine. It worked out fine. The other thing you say is well, the benefit of the hindsight. You have obviously perfect clarity, and you you know while you're there on the ground, you're thinking you're moving fast, uh, and doing things uh, in context with telepathy uh, and as real time as you can, you know, in, in hindsight, you say, okay, I could have moved so much quicker and this was so, so obvious uh, it's there. But, you know, you, you just, you, you you know, there's a famous, well, not a famous line, but a Bob Dylan line I loved from uh, one of his songs and it's like, don't have the inclination to look back on any mistake. So I have a long list of mistakes. I don't have the inclination to look back upon them. I have the inclination to you know, go forward and improve and get better. Yeah, as a sort of reflection, reflection tool, as opposed to a dwelling and anxiety-inducing habit. Um, you mentioned Bob Dylan. I'm a Bob Dylan fan. You're from... Smithtown or Comac? Which part of the island are you what from? What part of the island am I from? Um, yeah. I, I lived Thereabouts, in right? uh, Smithtown. Comac, Smithtown, and Lake Ronkonkoma. Lake Ronkonkoma. I dated a girl whose grandma lived really? in Lake Ronkonkoma. Uh, are you a Billy Joel fan? <laughs> yeah, I did. I love making the trip out there. We'd go up to Port Jeff. 
Fort Jeff's a that. nice town. Uh, yeah, Fort Jeff. Yep. Oyster Bay. What's your uh, What's your go to Joel My song? Do- go to a Dylan song. Joel, oh, Joel, Billy, Billy Joel. Joel. It would have to be uh, a piano man. Is there a way that we can play Piano Man out when we edit this as the sort of we could figure that out, right? Yeah. Um, well, Bob, I want to be respectful of your time. We really appreciated the conversation. I guess the best way to close is just if we think about the biggest takeaway from the book and what, what you want the audience to walk away with, uh, what would, what would that be? Well, I, I, I would say this, uh, and, uh, one is we lived through, you know, some major arcs, right? So 2003 to 2005, we had a major headwind where dot-com busting in the bubble, 2005 to 2008, we had tailwinds, the economy was, you know, post school, everything was happy. In 2008 to 2010, 11, you know, obviously a major uh, headwind, then, you know, benign but real tailwinds after that. And I think, you know, we executed successfully through the different phases with different results based upon what the macroeconomic forces gave us. But I think at the end of the day, it was a constant attention to the job at hand, being engaged and being passionate with it. And while we never got instantaneous rewards or feedbacks and uh, feedback, and sometimes it felt like the opposite, you know, the fact that you keep that things on a constant and consistent basis, uh, you know, things will uh, work out independent of the uh, tenor of the time. Absolutely. Bob Greifeld, author of Market Movers, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I appreciate your time. Look forward to talking again. Take it easy. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcast. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.